Obviously, we've been going through the book of Isaiah for quite a while earlier this year. Uh, We're taking a break today, not because I feel like it's mandated because it's Mother's Day, but I do think that there are some good things for us to consider on the subject, and this day is a good opportunity to do so. And um, having been gone a good part of this week, I felt like I also needed more time to consider some of the warnings that God gave to Ephraim and to Judah in Isaiah. So it'll take some more time this week to prepare that for next Sunday. How many of you know who Paul the Apostle is? Raise your hand. Okay. And Timothy? Okay. And how many of you can tell me a lot about Timothy's mother Eunice? Okay. Okay, just a little bit. All right. We remember Paul as the great apostle. Many people remember Timothy as this faithful helper and companion to Paul, but not nearly as many people remember Eunice, Timothy's mother. So against that reality, most of us will be Eunice, remembered primarily by our family and those nearby who are impacted by our lives. And that's a good thing. This man named Gary Thomas wrote a book on parenting that I read Recently, he said this, In short, when we're painfully honest, we have to admit that most of what we fret over will, in the not-too-distant future, become absolutely irrelevant, forgotten, and wiped away. If we focus on these ephemeral or temporary concerns, we're already living antiquated lives that in a mere two generations nobody will care about or remember. A bit later, he says this, When I embrace my historical insignificance, I am set free to concentrate on very real and eternal relational significance. I matter to my wife. I'm important to my children. I have a secure standing as an adopted son of the Most High God. These are the relationships I want to focus my life on. This is where I want to spend my energy. Obviously, he's saying that as a husband and father, but I think it applies to the subject of mothers as well. This one struck me. He said, Pastor, it's okay that not every one of your sermons will be remembered. We could add to it, it's okay if not any one of your sermons is remembered, potentially, right? Businessman or woman, it's okay that your company may not outlive you. And then he finishes with this. We will soon be forgotten on earth, but we will be remembered in heaven. Let us humbly accept this fact and then embrace the sacred trust of children that God bestows on us. We must reprioritize our lives according to our own relative insignificance, finally learning to think as God thinks generationally. For those of you who say, I don't have kids or my kids are grown, we'll see how Timothy's grandmother impacted his life as well. And the same possibility for service, although it's not the main focus this morning, exists for other single women or childless women in the church who faithfully serve God. I want us to begin by seeing three truths about Timothy's mother, Eunice, that all moms I think should learn from. Taken together, I think we could sum them up this way. Godly mothers teach faithfulness by words and example. Godly mothers teach faithfulness by words and example. The first thing we see from these verses is that godly mothers teach about God. This should be obvious, but I think it's clear from these verses. 2 Timothy 1.5 talks about the sincere faith within you that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I'm sure it's in you as well. And then uh, chapter 3, verse 15, from childhood you've known the sacred writings that lead to salvation. Godly mothers teach about God, but they do not do so in a perfect environment. They do so despite past issues. Why do I say this? Well, what Bob read for us in Acts 16 
uh, verses 1 through 3, that there is this reality that we, we see this, this interesting way that Timothy's mother is described, that she was a believer, but his father was a Greek. So we see, first of all, that his mother Eunice married a Greek man. Now, we might say, what's the big deal about that? What do you have against people who are Greeks? In their day, it was not the sort of ethnic, potentially all the discussions about racism kind of issue that it is in our day, right? So this was not a question of, do you look down on people who are of a different ethnicity? This was a question of whether God's people were going to follow the, uh, the thing that he had told them to do and marry people who similarly believed in and followed after God. Over and over again in the Old Testament, God had to get after the Israelites because they would keep intermarrying with the peoples around them who worshipped idols. And as soon as they did that, or as soon as they gave their daughters to the pagan sons and pagan sons to their Jewish daughters, as soon as there were these intermarriages throughout the Old Testament, the people walked away from God over and over and over again. So God's concern was not about ethnic purity, not some twisted, warped, evil idea of a master race and only stay within your own ethnicity. That was never the point. It was about spiritual purity. If you're going to follow after God, you have to marry someone who follows after God. It seems pretty clear, based on the way the passage is laid out, that Timothy's dad does not believe and does not teach him about God. Why do I say that? Because it's his mom and his grandma who are teaching him about God, and his father is only mentioned as a passing reference. Seemingly, either his father was dead, his father had divorced his mother because of her becoming a believer, or he was just there but not involved in his life. Along the same lines of what I was saying earlier, if you choose to marry someone who does not know God as his Savior, who does not know God as her Savior, the almost inevitable reality is that person is going to drag you away from God or it's going to create chaos and misery in your life. Now, is it possible for God to save someone who's not a believer after the fact? Absolutely. God can do whatever he wants. But if we presume upon God that he's going to do that, we are making foolish choices. And so for the young people in the church, I just think that I need to take the moment to point out here from Eunice's life, the decisions that you make about who you're going to date or court or whatever phrase you want to use and eventually marry are very important and affect the course of your life. Does God's grace triumph regardless of wrong or foolish decisions that we make? Absolutely. We're going to see that in the life of Eunice. But did that create difficulty for her? I think that's pretty clear as well. And if it's not clear from this passage, it's very clear from other passages in which uh, God says that you, there's no fellowship between light and darkness, between serving Satan and serving God. And the context of that is purity in the church more than it is about marriage, but it has a very clear application to marriage. So, don't marry someone who is an unbeliever. It will ruin your life in many ways. Don't presume upon God that he's going to fix it for you later because that is testing God and trying to force him into a box and say, God, well, I messed this up. Now you've got to fix it. God's not obligated to fix the mess that we've created in our lives. Does he graciously work despite it? Absolutely. But is he obligated to fix it? Absolutely not. So far better 
for us to avoid those sort of situations by following God's wise counsel and marrying someone who believes in him. That being said, Eunice did not take this situation as an excuse to say, well, I made a potentially foolish decision in my past, so I'm just going to walk away from my responsibility here. No. She had married a man who was a Greek. She didn't follow all the things that God would have normally expected for someone who was a a Jewish person. For example, verse 3 shows that Timothy had not been circumcised. That was something that was supposed to happen on the eighth day as a sign of being connected with God's people. And we could make the argument, well, he wasn't fully Jewish, so maybe it didn't matter as much. But the reality is, for whatever reason, it didn't happen. It didn't happen. And so at least that part of his heritage she abandoned. We don't know her reasons for it. I'm not going to speculate on her reasons for it. My point is just to say that situation affected what happened. But what did not change was her recognition that she needed to teach Timothy about God. She taught Timothy about God despite past issues. She taught Timothy about God despite a situation that was less than ideal. We don't know exactly the relationship of Timothy's father, but at the very least, he's not helping to teach about God. Eunice does have Timothy's grandmother because Paul mentions her in 2 Timothy 1.5, but seemingly no one else. So let's pause and talk a moment about Timothy's grandmother. Timothy's grandmother might very well have had the attitude, my daughter has married this Greek man and seemingly walked away from what I taught her and raised her and whatever else, so I'm done with her. But she doesn't do that. And so here's an opportunity for grace. If you have a child who has made a decision that you think is foolish, and you're now the grandmother and you say, I don't understand why they would do this, you have an opportunity to say, what's more important, my good name and reputation that they follow the things that I wanted them to have done, or that I have an opportunity to have an impact on my grandchildren in a godly way? And it appears from this text that Lois, Timothy's grandmother, said, what's more important to you is not that my daughter had the ideal situation that I wish she would have had, but that I'm going to teach my grandson, and potentially others, we don't know if Timothy had any brothers or sisters, about God. Further application, you say, well, I don't have kids, I don't have grandkids, so what in the world does this have to do with me? The point is about mothers and grandmothers from this passage. But Titus 2 makes this point, godly older women in the church are supposed to teach younger women in the church. So don't think that God has nothing for you to do if you are not a mother, not a grandmother, if uh, things in your life didn't work out the way that you expected. If you love God and are following after God, you have an opportunity to be an example and to teach children in the church about God. So don't underestimate the impact that you can have on them. Don't think that you're too old. We don't know how old Timothy's grandmother was. And the text doesn't say, and frankly, it doesn't matter. Until the moment you stand before God, you still have ministry to do. So don't think that age or circumstance are an obstacle to be you being used by God. So here's the question. Do you see your life as useful to God? Despite past issues, despite situations that may not be ideal. And, and it comes down to this. Godly mothers teach about God because it pleases God. 
Aside from all the other things about life circumstances and is this best situation that it could possibly be, the reason that you ought to do it is because it pleases God. Now, Ephesians 6.4 is clearly addressed to fathers. Fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But I would remind you of two passages in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7, where it talks about teaching who God is to your children throughout the day, when you get up, when you lie down, everywhere you go, teach your children about God. And the fact that in Proverbs 1, 8 and a whole bunch of other places, it talks about the teachings of your father and of your mother. This is not a responsibility exclusively for fathers. It's not a responsibility that fathers should dump on mothers or on a Christian school or on the church and expect that it's going to happen because you'll stand before God and give account. But it is a responsibility, clearly, that mothers take an incredibly important role in. And ideally, a home has two parents, right? But statistically and experientially, that's not the case for a lot of people. So if your home only has one parent in reality or just one parent who's involved in the kids' lives or one parent who's a believer, wants to teach them about God, you can't just say, well, you know, it says fathers are supposed to do it, so I'm not going to worry about it. Timothy's mother and grandmother didn't take that attitude. They said, here's Timothy. He needs to learn about God. His father's a Greek. He's potentially off doing whatever. Timothy still needs to learn about God. So do not use circumstances or past difficulties as an excuse to ignore the responsibility to teach children about God because it pleases God and honors God. Godly mothers teach about God without making excuses for past choices or less than perfect circumstances, but godly mothers teach about God as examples of sincere faith. We saw this, as I already mentioned, in 2 Timothy 1.5, where it said, I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy, Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice. So godly mothers teach about God as examples of sincere faith. What you do may well be louder than what you say. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says this, Follow me as I follow Christ. Paul knew the power of example and not in a vague, like, moralistic kind of way, like, we just need good examples and everything's going to turn out okay. Not that, but to the extent that our lives reflect the character and values of God, people around us are going to observe that. This is not, I don't have a verse for this, but I think it's true. Children are always watching. And the way that you know that they're always watching is because they will inevitably say things that show that they were watching at moments that you wish that they hadn't been, right? You said something you shouldn't have, you got angry, you did something foolish, you even just silly things like you stubbed your toe and did a weird little dance and whatever, and they saw it and they bring it up later and you're like, why were you watching then, right? Why weren't you watching when I showed you how to caulk the sink or the tub or, you know, one of those useful skills, right? Why were you watching at this embarrassing moment or when I failed as a parent, right? But the reality is that children are always watching. Another reality that I think is true is children have a strong sense of fairness and see through hypocrisy. So along those lines, children are not going to be fooled if your Monday to Saturday doesn't line up with your Sunday and Wednesday night. So you can come to church and you can be all put together and you can act all spiritual and if you go home 
Your kids are going to know that there's a difference between how mom is at home and how mom is at church. How mom is at home and how mom is when she's around her friends. How mom is at home and what she tells people online about here's how wonderful my life is. People that you are around all the time, you cannot hide the realities of your life, and that's particularly true of your children. Timothy watched his mother and learned. His grandmother had sincere faith. His mother had sincere faith. He had sincere faith. Now, I'm just going to pause for a moment here because this appears to create an overwhelming burden on you as a mother. If my kids are always watching, if I have to do these things to please God, despite whatever's happened up to this point, That can be an overwhelming sense of burden and guilt and how can I ever live up to this and I might as well just throw in the towel now because what's the point? What is the thing that enables you to do this impossible task? It's the same thing that enables any of the rest of us to do the impossible task that God calls us to. It is the reality of Jesus and the hope of the gospel. What I mean by that is this. You and I are sinners. We're born sinners. We live in sin and we just love sin. God says, love me with all your heart, love your neighbor as yourself. And we say, I'm going to love things other than God, and I'm going to love myself instead of the people around me, because quite frankly, I'm the one who matters to me far more than them, and what I want matters to me far more than what God wants. That's our natural state. And if that's you, you are not going to teach your children about God, because you probably don't know God, And you're not going to want to put the effort to teach them about God because there's other things that are far more pleasing to you than spending time trying to teach kids about God. So if you don't know Jesus, you can't do any of the things that I'm saying that these godly examples call you to do. But if by God's grace you have said, yeah, this is my natural state. I'm a sinner. I love my sin. I live in my sin. I have nothing to offer to God. But God has offered me Jesus. He lived a perfect life. He died a death of sacrifice. God accepted his payment and raised him from the dead. He was raised from the dead and went up to heaven. He's coming again to rule and to reign. I'm looking for him to return. If if I come to understand all those things, believe the gospel, turning away from my sin, turning to God, what necessarily follows according to the New Testament is this, God now dwells within you. Which means that when God calls you by godly examples and by passages that are just commands to teach your children about Him, He is the one that sustains you in that task. He is the one who has forgiven all of your failings and He is the one who helps you to weather the ups and downs of that difficult and beautiful and painful and amazing and complex and joyful and sorrowful process. God is the one that's going to cause you to succeed in the task, not you. So if you have in your mind, I have to do this, I'm the one that's going to make it happen, it's all about my effort you're going to be miserable and frustrated because you can't. But God can. And so, does it matter the way that we live? Yes. 
And when we see those moments of hypocrisy, what should it cause us to do? Not sort of say, oh, I've got to try harder, I've got to do better. That's what society likes to say. We catch a politician committing a- adultery or, you know, saying something or other about gun control, and then he has 10 guns at his house or whatever. Just blatant examples of hypocrisy where what someone says doesn't match up with what they do. And society's response is, do better, and there is no forgiveness, right, at the same time. The Bible's response is, you can't do better, but God can help you change, and God has forgiven all of your failings in Jesus, but that doesn't mean keep doing them. You and I need the gospel if we're going to succeed in this task. And mothers in particular need God's grace in the gospel, not... How do I put this? There are a lot of voices that act like you have to be perfect and you have to live up to impossible standards and that you need to feel guilty that you don't and all these other sorts of things and they offer you false paths to accomplishing those unrealistic goals. And God says, believe in the gospel, ask for my help, and you're going to fail, but I can still be honored in what you've done. And along those lines, God notices your work even if other people don't. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Don't think that your labor is in vain in the Lord. God's the one you've got to answer to about how you've parented as a mother. Right? It would have been potentially very easy if Lois and Eunice were here today to say, here's what the neighbors think about me. Here's what these family members think about me. Here's what other people in the church think about me. What matters ultimately is what God thinks about you. What God knows to be true, how God evaluates your work. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, when he was talking about how the Corinthians were evaluating all the things that he had done and looking at them in the worst possible light and just saying, yeah, well, I know, Paul, you poured your life out for us and done all these amazing things, but we like this guy over here because he's tall and handsome and talks really good, and you're kind of short and ugly and stammer, so... Forget the fact that you've poured out your life and service to us. We're going to follow this guy over here. And Paul says, you know what? At the end of the day, I don't answer to you. And not in a proud way, not in a selfish way, not in a I'm going to do whatever I want kind of way, but in a way that says, God's the one who evaluates what I've done. And you may never come to recognize the way that I've poured my life out for you, Corinthians, but as long as God sees and knows, it doesn't matter if you acknowledge it. Does that have any relevance for being a mom? There's a lot that you do that goes unappreciated. And yes, husbands should be more observant and less dense and thank you for those things. And kids, same thing. But if you're living for their approval, you're going to be disappointed. What you need to be living for is God's evaluation of your life. So here's the question. Are you going to faithfully live for him when the only people watching are your kids of varying ages? Because when, when there's other people, when you're at the park or in the grocery store or whatever else, you're thinking a lot about how do they view this. But when you get home and it's just your kids watching, or even when they're not around and it's just God watching, in those moments, are you... How do, how do you view your ministry? I think, um, and we'll talk more about this in the next point, but Eunice was not 
Paul's mom. She was Timothy's mom. Many people don't even think much about her today, but her ministry to Timothy had a lot of impact on the success of the early church. Which leads me to the the last point here. Godly mothers teach about God as examples of sincere faith, showing forth Christ and how they live, even if their only audience might be a toddler or a teenager. But finally, godly mothers teach about God as examples of sincere faith, knowing that God can use their children in amazing ways. Now, in this passage, I think we need to recognize your child may have more of a support role instead of being in the spotlight. Timothy served alongside Paul. We see him in Acts 17 and Acts 18. First of all, in Acts 16, Acts 19, Acts 20. Obviously, the letters that Paul writes, First and Second Timothy. And then in a whole bunch of the greetings of Paul's other letters, it's Paul and Timothy to the church at. But it was Paul and Timothy. It wasn't Timothy and Paul, at least until Paul's passing off the scene. So, in connection with this idea of being in more of a support role, Timothy serves alongside Paul. Timothy was also sent and trusted by Paul to go to a number of places, to go to Corinth, 1 Corinthians 4.17 and 16.10, to go to Philippi, Philippians 2.19, to go to Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 3.1-6, and to go to Ephesus, which you see in 1 Timothy 1.3-7. What sort of work is he doing? He's encouraging the churches. He's preaching to them. He's bringing back messages to Paul and others. And this was all very important work, but Paul was the one who tends to get all of the recognition and not so much Timothy, and we need to be okay with that for our kids. Along those same lines, it's more important for your child to be faithful than to be successful by human standards. What does that faithfulness look like? Timothy was willing to go to prison for his faith. There's a fascinating aside in Hebrews 13. I'm just going to read it for you here real quick. That I think, I don't know if you necessarily would even notice it, but at the end of Hebrews 13, it says, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will soon see you. Now, we can argue about whether Paul wrote Hebrews or who wrote it. I think there's decent evidence that it potentially was something that Paul had a hand in. But regardless of that, what is it saying about Timothy? He's been released. Released from what? Released from prison. God used many things. Paul's faithful example in calling Timothy to suffer alongside him. uh, The teaching that he received from other apostles along the way. His experience in serving the churches. But the foundation of Timothy being committed enough to God to go to jail for it was the sincere faith that he saw in his mother and grandmother and the truth about God that they taught him that uh, 2 Timothy 3.15 points out. So it's more important for your child to be faithful than successful by human standards. Whether or not people knew Timothy's name, whether or not he ever got the recognition that he deserved, whether or not he was ever rich, probably wasn't, Whether or not he ever got an amazing job, probably didn't. What mattered was that Timothy was faithful. And Timothy was faithful, I believe, in large part because of the foundation that his mom and grandma laid for him early on in life. Another example of Timothy's faithfulness is that he stuck with Paul to the end. That passage that Bob read for us, it's easy for us to sort of skip over what's being said there with regard to... Um, sort of these instructions Paul gives in 2 Timothy 4, 9-15. through 15. 
But there's two things I want to highlight for you. Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. And verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. And then there's the practical reality because all these other people were involved in ministry. They weren't there with Paul either. Uh, So uh, Crescens went to Galatia and Titus went to Dalmatia. Tychicus had gone to Ephesus. So three of the four people that were there with Paul had been scattered, sent to other places for various reasons. Luke was still there with Paul. Demas had left him. Alexander tried to do him harm. There's a sense that both of these had, I think, been professing believers at one point, and now they've just turned away from God. So in the midst of that disappointment of having been abandoned by people you've poured your life into, and people who should have loved you, stabbing you in the back, and doing harm to you, and trying to undermine your ministry, and people that you have sent out into ministry not being there to encourage you, Paul says, the one person who I want at my side in this moment when I'm about to die is Timothy. So Timothy, go get Mark because we need him. Bring the stuff that I need so I can keep doing ministry until my life is done. Watch out for the dangers that faced me, but come and see me, Timothy. Why does Paul call Timothy to do that? Because like Paul trusted Timothy and other faithful men to carry the offering from Corinth back to Jerusalem, like Paul trusted Timothy to send him to to Ephesus to sort out some of the mess in that church that was potentially going on, like Paul trusted Timothy all along the way through their ministry because Timothy had proved himself faithful, Paul knew that Timothy, when things were going to be hard, possibly Timothy already having gone to jail himself, was not going to be scared to come visit Paul at the jail and bring him the stuff that he needed and keep pushing ministry forward and sort of receive the the torch that Paul was passing on to him of ministry in the church going on. Why did that happen? God's grace... But God used Lois and Eunice to teach Timothy to be the sort of person that was useful in ministry to God and to Paul. So to sum this up, God has given you an amazing responsibility as a mother or as a grandmother or by way of extension as a godly older woman in the church to have ministry. As a mother, do you buy the lies that say that what you're doing is a waste of time, there's better things that you could be doing? That you would be better off in the world working some kind of career that might take you away from your kids and, and you don't have any impact on their lives. And I understand there's difficult realities, financial and all that sort of thing. I'm not, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about society says make your career a priority, and then deal with your kids with what's left over. And there is great honor in pouring your life out on behalf of your kids, even if it means you don't have stuff that people think is important, or don't get to go on trips that people think would be amazing, or don't get to have experiences that have always been dreams of yours. Your ministry to your kids is an honorable and noble thing. And it's an honorable and noble thing if nobody ever knows much about it. We live in a society that we feel like we have to trumpet the things that we do online or in conversations or write a book about it or whatever. 
faithful, humble service that nobody knows about, God honors. Perhaps even more, because Jesus said the people who make a big deal about those things have already had their reward. God has given you an amazing responsibility. Do you see it as that, or do you see it as a burden or as a second best that you've settled for? Timothy was a faithful servant of God, even through prison and when Paul was facing his own death. Timothy was a faithful servant of God because his mother and grandmother taught him the word of God. Timothy was a faithful servant of God because his mother and grandmother modeled sincere faith before him. So are you a godly mother? Do you teach God's word without making excuses? Do you model sincere faith regardless of who's watching? Do you entrust your children to God having faithfully fulfilled your duty in their lives? God knows, God sees, and God rewards. And is that enough for you? And is your joy what John talks about in 3 John, verse 4? I have no greater joy than this to hear of my children walking in the truth. God has given mothers an amazing responsibility. So see it as that and live it out with God's grace. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the opportunity to have looked at your word this morning. And we pray that we would show honor where it is due, first and foremost to you, because you are the one whose grace upholds all the good that we do, but also to those who faithfully fulfill simple but vital tasks in life in a way that pleases you. We pray that you would give grace in that. In Christ's name, amen.